Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Battle of Alesti was the largest conflict of the American Civil War fought on Florida soil. We'll go to the annual Battle of Alesti reenactment. My uh, great-great-grandfather died on the battlefield here, and it was, I came out here for many years. I've been out here about 18 years now, and for the first 10 years or so, I didn't know that. We'll discuss World War II soldiers at Camp Gordon Johnston. Close to a quarter million soldiers passed through the training facilities uh, during, that, during that time period. And we'll look at the religious of Santeria in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The loud booming of cannon fire rips through the North Florida pine forest 15 miles east of Lake City as startled cavalry horses whinny. Repeated rifle fire rings through the trees as more than 10,000 soldiers confront each other on February 20, 1864, near Ocean Pond. The Battle of Alusty was the largest conflict of the American Civil War fought on Florida soil. Each side began with about 5,000 troops. When the three-hour battle was over, nearly 3,000 soldiers were dead, two-thirds of them from the Union forces. Three new U.S. Colored Troop regiments bravely fought as Union soldiers at the Battle of Alusty, some even before they had an opportunity to complete their training. An annual reenactment of the bloody fight is held at the Alusty Battlefield Historic State Park. Sean Adams is Associate Professor of History at the University of Florida. Alusty is important for uh, a number of political reasons. Um, it is significant because it comes at a time when the United States is attempting to swing southern states back into the Union. Um, and uh, there was an attempt, for example, to reconstruct Louisiana in 1863. Uh, the notion is that you're going to also then swing Florida into the Union. So uh, this is after also the Emancipation Proclamation had made it possible for African-American soldiers to serve. And so the combination of those factors, the presence of black soldiers, but also the idea of reconstructing Florida, uh, create the impetus for this campaign to secure Florida. Uh, it comes out of um, the east going towards the west and it kind of the Confederate and Union forces meet right here at Alusty. Um, and so the significance of this battle is that what it does is it, it means that Florida is not going to be one of those kind of early states um, to be reconstructed. And the presence of black soldiers is significant not only in its meaning for African-American citizenship but also in the unfortunate events that occurred at the end of the battle when many wounded black soldiers were summarily executed by Confederate troops. The Union lost the Battle of Alusty, but won the Civil War 14 months later. Florida was the third state to secede from the Union in January 1861, behind only South Carolina and Mississippi. Sean Adams. Florida was very significant um, to the Confederate war effort in that it supplied uh, beef, it supplied salt, um, it was an area where uh, supplies could come in. 
Um, uh, you know, the, the United States sets up a blockade of the Confederate coast, but of course Florida has a massive coast. There's no way that, that those Union ships um, are going to be able to keep all uh, activity away from Florida. Um, now the one thing that's interesting and significant about Florida is that it had no rail connection with the South in the beginning of the war. Um, and so there's an internal struggle within Florida to set up a kind of rail connection. Um, railroads were in many ways the, the lifelines uh, for Civil War armies. Um, and so uh, without that lifeline, uh, Florida's impact on the Confederate ar army could be limited. And so that's why that was uh, in many ways so contested. And that's why control over the state was so contested because the Confederacy was trying to run a war on frankly limited resources and uh, Florida beef and Florida salt uh, were really, really significant parts of that kind of logistical aspect of the war. The Alusty Battlefield Historic Site is Florida's first state park established in 1909. Since 1977, an annual reenactment of the Battle of Alusty has been staged here. Gary Dickinson is president of the Alusty Battlefield Citizen Support Organization. The CSO is the not-for-profit group that presents the reenactment. Planning for this actually takes place starting right after the battle for the following year. The CSO has a reenactment committee that's made up of every aspect out here from the medical to the artillery, to the sutlers, uh, to the State Park Service and the U.S. Forestry Service. We are blessed that we're able to have this on this and on actual battlefield because it's under the U.S. Forestry Service. We will start the planning phase immediately after this by looking at any problems that we had. We want to make sure those are straightened out for the next year to make sure it's an enjoyable experience. Typically, we're going to plan for about 2,000 reenactors to be out here. We will have this weekend 21 cannons. Those are full-size artillery pieces. We'll have between 50 and 75 mounted cavalry units. So we'll start talking about our logistical plans, uh, changes that may need to be made to the camp area where the authentic Confederates are at, the authentic Union camps are at. We also have areas for modern campers. Uh, we also have areas for civilians to come in and camp. So we'll look at that. If there's any improvements that need to be made, we'll make them for next year. We look at our sutler area. We have probably the finest group of sutlers with Civil War era items for sale that exist. We have national companies that come in here. So you can show up here and you can buy everything to become a private to a general, or if you just like to be a lady at the tea or the ball, everything you need is right here. Authentic Union and Confederate camps are part of the reenactment weekend with small groups of people in Civil War era costumes sitting around campfires among hundreds of small canvas tents. Food vendors are on hand nearby along with informational displays and people selling Civil War memorabilia. A variety of public programs addressing various Civil War topics are presented along with performances of period music. Joel Fears is a longtime participant in the Battle of Alusty annual reenactment weekend. Fears says he had graduated from college and was nearly an old man when he first discovered that African Americans were not just slaves, but actually fought and died in the Civil War. He wants to share this information with the public. Fears is dressed as a particular African American Union soldier. 
I'm representing James Henry Gooding. He was one of the people who fought here. Again, they were all educated. He was uh, uh, also, he wrote uh, dispatches to the New Bedford Mercury newspaper. And uh, he also was writing a story of this battle. So he was a writer, well-educated, but he was captured here in this battle. He was wounded, he was taken to Andersonville, he was in prison there, and later on died there. If you go to Andersonville, to that historic site, you'll see a grave marker there with his name on it. Mitch Morgan has been participating in the Battle of Alusty reenactment for nearly two decades, portraying a Confederate soldier. He explains that reenactors have an active weekend at the Alusty event. Every year is a little bit different, but there's, yet there's some similarities too. We're really pretty busy most of the time we're here, but it's what we enjoy doing. We go to Colors every morning, up really early around 6 o'clock, they blow Reveille. So you really don't have a lot of time for breakfast because you have to get some coffee down if you drink coffee and get on the line really early. We go down to Colors. That's where we honor our ancestors and we raise the flags of both the federal and Confederate camps. Listen to any announcers for the day, they remind us of what time the battle is. Then generally, such as today, we come back and try to grab something quick because we go to a drill that lasts about an hour and a half. Then we get back from the drill, we have maybe another hour, hour and a half to be lined up for the battle. So Saturdays are very, very busy. Sundays are a little bit better. Uh, we try to go to church on Sunday. We have a church service out here. We go to Colors Sunday morning, come back, go to church, and battle again on Sunday. So it's a fairly busy weekend, but it, it's something that we enjoy. Participating in the annual Battle of Alusty reenactment has special meaning for Morgan. My uh, great-great-grandfather died on the battlefield here. And it was I came out here for many years. I've been out here about 18 years now. And for the first 10 years or so, I didn't know that until I got interested in my genealogy and family history. And I'd always got kind of one of those feelings here. That there was something more to this than just being in Florida's biggest battle, and I'm, I'm a native Floridian, but I said something more going on. I found out through my research that my great-great-grandfather died right here. He was the first unit to step on the field the day of the battle and perished, and I don't know where he's buried, possibly right where we're standing somewhere, because they're buried all over the, the area here. So it's real personal for me now, even more so, because of having an ancestor here. While the thousands of people who participate in the annual Battle of Alusty reenactment do so on a voluntary basis, not all of the soldiers who took part in the actual battle were so fortunate. Historian Sean Adams. The Confederacy is actually the first in, in, among the Union of the Confederacy to set up conscription. Um, they do so pretty early. Uh, there's an initial wave of volunteerism, but then uh, as the Confederacy runs, runs low on potential troops, um, they enact a draft, they enact a conscription, and of course the most controversial part uh, of that draft was the idea that you could buy a substitute, um, which many people considered unpatriotic, but uh, the idea was that you could, if you got drafted, you could basically pay someone to serve in your stead. Um, and so some historians, it's a little bit contested, but some historians have argued that actually um, the bulk of this war and the bulk of the armies in both the Union and the Confederacy were, were willing to fight, that, that conscription is an important, uh, certainly important political point, but that conscripted soldiers tended to, to not dominate either um, rank, uh, either the ranks of, of, of the Union or the Confederate armies. At least one set of conflicting viewpoints survives from the American Civil War. There is still disagreement over what exactly the war was all about. The Confederate view is that the war was about states' rights versus federal rights, while the Union perspective is that the war was fought because the South wanted to maintain slavery. What many Southern politicians believed secession was about was preserving uh, the right to own slaves, which in fact is a kind of right that's held in the states because slavery is something that is not universally 
um, you know, legalized in the United States. Uh, it's, it's only in those, um, in those states that actively uh, allow for slavery. And so it is a state right to a certain extent, but the major, major expression of that state right was uh, the continuation of racial slavery. And so the secession commissioners are a big part of that. Um, and we look at the speeches, uh, Charles Dew has written a book uh, where he reproduces a lot of those speeches and sees what they're saying. And, and as I mentioned, they're talking about a new Haiti. They're talking about an apocalyptic vision of Lincoln's abolitionists freeing the slaves and what that would mean for the South. The South was one third uh, enslaved people. And so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of kind of probably well-earned anxiety about what any um, end of slavery would look like um, in the South. And so I think that that's really the kind of major thrust of the Civil War. Uh, it's kind of a hedge to say that. I realize to say it's both. And uh, famously, the, uh, the Immigration Service, if you ask uh, if, whether the Civil War is about slavery or states' rights, apparently both answers are correct. So uh, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, you get asked to answer that question and, and you're supposed to provide a really brief answer. I would say it's complicated, but the bulk of it was really about the preservation of slavery. Event organizer Gary Dickinson says that it's important for us to remember this difficult period in our history and that the Battle of a Lusty Reenactment helps us to do that. This was a significant battle for the state of Florida. Uh, the Union was going to come in and eventually go all the way over to the Tallahassee, capture the, the capital. Didn't happen. In fact, after the Battle of Alusty, they went and stayed pretty much on the coast. They didn't venture back in again. Um, we learn from our history. We'd never want anything like this to ever happen again. But it's good to explore the history of what did happen from battle tactics to the humanities, what happened to the citizens, what happened to the farmers and ranchers that were in the area. So it's as much about remembrance as understanding our history and how this great country was formed. Even under conflict, we see lasting relationships that have endured over the years. We can see that even as the veterans of this conflict actually came together with reunions after the battle to show that we had reunited as a country. The Alusty Battlefield Historic State Park is east of Lake City. The annual reenactment held there commemorates Florida's largest Civil War battle, which happened on February 20th, 1864. <laughs> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. Benefits of membership include our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. During World War II, Florida served as a training ground for our armed services. 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have a collection here from Camp Gordon Johnston. Yeah, that's right. Uh, many people don't realize that uh, Florida served a really important role during the Second World War as a training facility or a jumping off point for tens of thousands of uh, U.S. soldiers and sailors who would eventually go on to fight in both European and Pacific theaters. And one of the largest training camps in Florida was Camp Gordon Johnston. And it was uh, built right around uh, 1942, and it was formed after the uh, U.S. decided to enter uh, enter the Second World War. And it was located in a small uh, fishing village known as uh, Carabel uh, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, about 60 miles south of Tallahassee. And it really was uh, a very rural setting. It was in the middle of nowhere. And in fact, later, uh, uh, generals would describe it as um, uh, being at the, the edge of the earth. Um, but it was perfect, um, a perfect site for the uh, type of training that the U.S. Army needed. And that was uh, training for amphibious landings. Uh, of course, it, it, later in 1944, there was a famous uh, D-Day invasion, which involved uh, tens of thousands of soldiers who stormed the beachheads of, of Normandy, France. And many of those soldiers got their initial training. Uh, in fact, uh, the last time they were standing on U.S. soil was in uh, Camp Gordon E. Johnston. So it was an important logistical facility for the U.S. Army. Uh, and over the course of its existence from 1942 to 1946, uh, close to a quarter million soldiers passed through the training facilities uh, during, that, during that time period. Now, these training camps were meant to be temporary facilities. Did this cause problems for the soldiers? Absolutely. And that was a problem with a lot of these uh, training camps throughout Florida. They were hastily constructed and really were intended for short-term use. Many of the soldiers slept in uh, tents or in uh, temporary housing units. Uh, but living in, in this part of the Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, most of these soldiers were coming from other parts of the United States. They weren't uh, used to the extreme changes in, in weather. Uh, they had uh, terribly cold winters uh, some years, but then they'd have these scorching hot summers. Uh, and these soldiers were forced to uh, sludge through the swamps and the uh, pine forests and uh, would run into uh, some of Florida's uh, uh, wildlife. In fact, we have some newspaper articles here from the local camp uh, newspaper that was called the Amphibian, and it shows a, a, a six-foot, four-inch rattlesnake that was killed inside of uh, the officer's quarters. We also have a live five-foot alligator that was caught by one of the, uh, uh, one of the camp's uh, soldiers uh, that was trying to slither away from the meth mess hall. Uh, so there were a lot of these uh, um, cases where soldiers were, were um, uh, forced to, to not only uh, uh, put up with the intense training of, of uh, amphibious warfare, um, but also some of the um, um, hardships of living in this part of, of Florida during the 1940s. Now, there weren't only American soldiers here in Florida. There were captured German soldiers as well, which I don't think a lot of people realize. Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, after the uh, the African campaigns, North African campaigns, there were thousands of German prisoners of war who were captured and, and had to be placed somewhere. And many of those men came to the United States. And Corp, uh, Camp Gordon Johnson served as one of those outposts. Um, in fact, there are some. Uh, there's a, a, a museum that's in Carabelle, Florida, that, that uh, highlights some of the uh, um, the. Uh, memories of these German POWs. Many of them worked on farms. They worked around the camps. Uh, the, the particular collection that we're looking at is uh, was donated by a gentleman by the name of Francis Blankenship. 
And Blankenship was the uh, post engineer, so he was second in command. And what we have is a collection of all of the inner workings of the camp. So we get a great insight into how these relationships sort of played out. Um, at this time, the U.S. Army was also segregated, so there were uh, thousands of African-American troops who were uh, stationed at Camp Gordon Johnston, but were separated from their, their white, uh, white counterparts. Then you also have, again, this contingent of, uh, of German POWs, all living in a, a small area of, of uh, less than 160,000 acres, um, but the camp itself was much smaller than that, uh, which led to some uh, issues. There were some um, uh, certainly there were fights, and, and a lot of that is chronicled in their uh, local uh, newspaper that was created. Um, but it was the job of people like uh, Blankenship and, and others to make sure that these soldiers were not only prepared for warfare, uh, but were kept safe, uh, not only from, from Florida's wildlife, but uh, from each other. Well, you mentioned the newspaper articles that are part of this collection. What are some of the other types of documents that you have in this Blankenship collection? Well, we also have uh, letters written home. You know, Blankenship was uh, originally from Oklahoma, and he describes uh, what his experience is like here in Florida. In fact, he mentions specifically that uh, after 30 months living in uh, this part of, of the Florida panhandle, he's gotten used to Florida but doesn't think he'll ever settle down. Well, in 1966, uh, apparently he did because he was living in Lakeland, Florida, when he donated this collection to the Florida Historical Society. So he did come back. Uh, but we have letters, uh, these personal correspondence letters, uh, we also have a collection of telephone directories. So this gives you an idea of how large uh, the camp was. They, they required their own telephone directory, and it was edited uh, quite often as new divisions and, and battalions moved in and out of the camp, uh, either to the theaters in Europe or, uh, or over to the Pacific. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. He's the boogie-woogie bugle bar of Company B. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida has long been home to a variety of religious traditions, from Catholicism and the Greek Orthodox Church to spiritualism and Scientology. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at Santeria in Florida. Santeria is a religious tradition broadly located in um, the Caribbean and really throughout Latin America, uh, very popular in Brazil, and it's got a very deep past. Uh, many anthropologists describe it as a syncretism or a merging of Catholic traditions and West African or Yoruba traditions, and it's become very prominent among uh, the African diaspora, and so we have populations of uh, people practicing uh, Santeria in the Miami area, in New York, in Chicago, really all over the place where you have uh, population centers. That was Dr. Christian Wells, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. He spoke to me about the practice of Santeria. Santeria is a syncretic religion of the Caribbean that combined the traditions from the Catholic, West African, and some indigenous religious beliefs. Santeria was popular among the Yorba people who originated in West Africa. Yorba deities were renamed as Catholic saints, and many of the rites and rituals from West Africa found its way into Santeria. However, since it deviated from traditional Catholic practices, adherents needed to enjoy ceremonies in private. With Cuban migration to Florida, these practices were transported first to Tampa and later to Miami with the respective ways of Cuban migration in the late 19th and then mid-20th century. 
Dr. Wells tells us about an item on display at the Waterman Gallery in the Social Sciences Building on the campus of the University of South Florida and how it relates to Santeria. And what we have collected in the um, Waterman Gallery in Anthropology at USF is a very large, nearly life-sized plaster statue um, of the Cuban uh, Santa Barbara uh, statue or Chango statue. Uh, and this comes originally from Cuba and it made its way to Miami and now it rests here in Tampa Bay. And it's of the, the classic Santa Barbara uh, with the crown holding a sword. Um, and it was probably featured in someone's home uh, and was part of the, the Santeria tradition in someone's home. The statue that Dr. Wells described is a statue of Santa Barbara. However, the statue is meant to represent the West African deity, Chengo, who embodied war, thunder, lightning, and fire in traditional West African religious practices. Thus, outwardly, this religious icon appears to represent Santa Barbara, who in Western religious tradition is associated with war, the military, and lightning. So both religious symbols share characteristics, but West Africans could merge Chango into the ideas and meanings of Santa Barbara. Dr. Wells tells me how this developed. Uh, in early colonial times, when African religious traditions or African-derived religious traditions wanted to express themselves, uh, that was often um, done in the context of um, the Catholic Church and they often weren't able to express religious traditions. Um, and so they had to adopt or adapt, uh, in this case, Catholic saints. And so they uh, recognized some of the same qualities in Catholic saints as in individuals uh, featured in mythohistorical traditions uh, in Santeria. And so we have um, images that look uh, on the surface like Catholic saints, but people that are participating in Santeria traditions know a much deeper or take a much deeper meaning. And so that's really the, the syncretism that I mean. Um, double meanings. There's a lot of double meanings in Catholic um, imagery in Santeria. Researchers have uncovered a variety of secret Santeria practices dating back to the Afro-Cuban population in Tampa at the end of the 19th century. However, researchers never documented this distinct religion in the United States until the 1940s. Since the religion grew under slavery and developed outside the eye of the Spanish, as well as the plantation owners in Cuba, it flourished in secrecy. Dr. Wells tells us why this was the case. Well, there, it was definitely not um, as popular in the, the 60s and 70s in terms of its public expression for a variety, I think, of social and, and political reasons. Uh, but the civil rights movement in the 70s helped to establish it as part of a group's heritage. And there, have been, there are aspects now that are more public, but it's still a very, uh, very much a private uh, religion where you have to be a participant to access many of the kinds of uh, dances and meetings and prayers and, and ceremonies and so forth. Santeria came to national attention because of a 1993 U.S. Supreme Court case that overturned a Hialeah city ordinance that banned the practice of animal sacrifice. And the court recognized Santeria's ceremonies as protected by the free exercise of religion. From this point on, Santeria moved into the public in places like Miami and Hialeah. 
That was Dr. Christian Wells, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The program is edited by John White. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and participate in the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily post, Today in Florida History. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.